0: Hello and welcome to Our Source, my name is Elvis and as always I am your host. Alright, so this is going to be kind of a long one, relatively, we don't have anything to talk about in terms of movie news or comic news or anything like that, but we did have a lot to talk about in terms of what I read this week, so in fact let's just step right into that. First off, we have Rorschach number 7 or 8, I've Lost Track, because this entire series has become one big blob of inconsequential, ponderous apathy you know it's there's no momentum to it there's no enthusiasm to it it's just a lot of like presupposed preconcepted ponderously boring and tedious stuff now, this issue is actually one of the most infamous right now. It's garnered some of the most attention, even though it's not particularly worse than any of the other issues that the series already had. In fact, it's doing something the series already did with an art creator, but it's the actual literal creator. It's somehow a lot more impactful to people. It's a lot more noticeable. And that is that, you know, this issue introduces the literal Frank Miller into the Watchmen universe. And it's, it's ridiculous. It's stupid. It has no thematic, emotional impact or weight. I do actually. I understand what he's trying to say. But what he's trying to say ends up meaning or having no faculty to what the story is going for or what the message even is in a real world context. Now to give an example. In like the second or third issue of this series Tom King introduces the Steve Ditko of the Watchmen universe. Now it's not literally Steve Ditko but it's meant to be him. It's the Watchmen counterpart to him. And He makes him an MRA, incel, like, alt-right terrorist weirdo. Which is, like, a really insane extrapolation of common urban legends and the conception about Steve Ditko as a person. And, like, okay, I understand that, at least. I think it's stupid. I think that, that when you're trying to make something that comments on comic history and comic creators and their importance in terms of, you know, the development of comics as a medium... Then, you know, just over-exaggerating, debunked urban legends like that is really kind of backwards and honestly kind of harmful to what you're trying to write. But whatever, you know, the fictional character, like he's meant to save Kiko, but he's not really. But then we get an issue like this where it's literally Frank Miller. Looks like Frank Miller. He's named Frank Miller. He created a comic called The Dark Fight or Flight Returns. And yeah, it's it's really blunt. And he has... He's literally making Frank Miller a mouthpiece for his own biases. Like, I don't know where Frank Miller has ever said something like, The Dark Knight was a mistake. I've ruined comics or the Dark Age of comics, and I regret that so much. And that, like that kind of stuff. Like, he's never done that. And in fact, Frank Miller has kind of remained gung ho and very kind of enthusiastic about comics that he's done. I think the only time he ever sort of regretted anything was, of course, The Follow of Holy Terror, which he's gone to say that he wasn't in the right state of mind when he did that kind of stuff. But yeah, it just seems really weird and it seems really flat-footed and I think Tom King got rightfully called out for it because you know, you're talking about an actual person who's still alive and you're trying to make a comment about comics and you're just making them like your own sort of um puppet for your own message here and it's it's weird. But what's weird is that there's a creator who, you know, wrote a dark age uh progenitor comic and who ended up regretting it and who ended up thinking that Silver so Age stuff was better and was the highly of the medium. And it wasn't Frank Miller, it was Alan Moore. Now, this issue has this weird occult bent to it, or like basically Frank Miller as part of like these people creating seances for Dr. Manhattan. That's weird. That's weird on its own. But then you add in the whole I wrote a comic from the 80s that pretty much destroyed the medium of comics. And then I wrote Silver Age stuff afterward, or I thought Silver Age stuff was really good. And that is Alan Moore's trajectory. Of his career, you have Watchmen, and you he ended up making things like Tom Strong, Supreme, ABC Comics as a whole, things that are much more more light. And I have a theory that it was originally meant to be Alan Moore that this script for this issue had Alan Moore in it, and I don't know if it was DC who checked it out or it was Tom King checked it out, or maybe it was a mixture of both, or even the most likely thing. Is that when you have a main series or max series like this that is meant to be the real Watchmen two, then it doesn't really pay or um, make any sense to have an entire issue that's is dedicated saying that Watchmen sucked and ruined comics. You know, it just seems like it seems too much of a reach uh, to expect your fans to swallow. It's not even it's not even the worst issue. It's just the one that's most bluntly. Ridiculously underthought. Oh, and here's another thing in terms of the Alan Moore theory. There's a page here with Frank Miller that's meant to be a direct homage to Miracle Man number one. So, yeah, it was definitely meant to be Alan Moore. <laughs> and uh, that's just so funny to me. Overall, two thumbs down. Anyway, moving on, we have Children of the Atom number two. And this issue was like about as good as the first issue. It didn't really have any uptick in quality. The one thing I will say is that it didn't have like a weird awkward three-page interlude where there's nothing but soapy teen drama bullshit which was like the most like jarring part of the first issue but everything else is still just pretty mediocre it's not bad it's not unreadable I still enjoyed going through it but it's also nothing that is as enrapturing or as entertaining as say the Ayla's New Mutants run which is fantastic. And I was hoping for a little bit more. A little more of uptick. There might still be some room for that. I think that the sort of character building they're working on. seems to be like a focused character and issue. So hopefully by like issue five. We're going to be able to have a good round out perception of this team. Which I think it's building toward. And the world building and like plot seating. They seem very palpable. I, I understand what Ayla is trying to kind of set up here. And I, I I'm excited for seeing where that develops. And where that pays off. Like, the mutant growth hormone bullshit that's obviously going on in the background. Like, that'll be really fun to kind of, you know, integrate into the themes and integrate into, like, what the stakes, personal stakes, the intimate stakes, that these characters who idolize mutants might be able to get into. So, fingers crossed. Overall, um, two fun middle. Not bad, but still pretty bland. Anyway, after that, we have America Chavez Made in the USA, issues number one and two, which I decided to read. I have said a lot of stuff about Mary Chavez in this show, and I just want to stand by it. So I thought, like, you know, there's this new miniseries that's coming out. I've heard some okay things about it, and I want to see, hey, how does that stack up? I don't want to keep hating a character just for, you know, a bad creator on their, their roster, you know, I want to give them a fair chance, so I decided to go look at this. And I have to say, it is a little bit better. It's still not ideal, but it's a series that has a lot more of an even footing when it comes to actually making America and her cast of characters like actual characters, not caricatures that are borderline and stereotypically racist, um, like Gabby Rivera did. Like, um, people behind *America Shop Made in the USA are at least putting in the work to make them grounded and more down-to-earth. And I-, I was surprised by that. Like, they actually feel... Like a dynamic that would exist in real families or in a real kind of community that that has Latin roots, you know. Um, There's some things when it comes to just portraying how America's foster family basically treats her and treats each other. And just the general kind of makeup of the family that felt really true to life. And I I really enjoyed that. That that really spoke to me as, as as a Latino person that, you know, sometimes feels like out of place. Just the way she interacts with her adoptive father and mother. I thought that was really, really tangible. That's some really great presence to it. But yeah, it's still not all that good. Like, there's still some moments where it's like, eh, you're, you're stretching into a cartoony, Hispanic kind of caricature. Like, I don't know anyone who would mutter about Rosco and Leche in the middle of, of, like, a fight or something, like, out bro of nothing. That's the stuff that feels forced, that feels Looney Tunes bullshit. I think that there's room for this character to grow out of that kind of stuff, and... Hopefully this miniseries is a stepping stone toward that because so far from when I read about the character she's either just a bland, blunt teen character, racist caricature and this time it's actually somewhere in the middle and you know hopefully there's progress made. Can't wait to see what the rest of the miniseries can do um, and hopefully more of her Latin roots through her foster family are you know actually capitalized on because that's one thing where I really don't like how they've this character because she's not a Latino person she's an alien from alternate dimension so you know if she's talking about his family then you know more power to her let's let's explore that a lot more and hopefully future writers do so overall I want them up I want the middle and lastly we're going to talk about Sweet Tooth Return number six which is the finale to the Sweet Tooth epilogue mini series, and it is nonsense like like, we just spent six issues for Jeff Lemire to say, I don't oh, know, that would be a cool idea, but I guess I didn't think of anything cool to do with it. It's one of those endings is like, who knows what happens after this, you know? It's like, Sweet Tooth had such a definitive ending, you know? It had such a great close-off, cyclical, circular kind of finale, and I love that kind of stuff, where everything comes around the end and actually has a good sense of closure to it. And with Sweet Tooth Return, nothing happens, really. Like, all we're doing is introducing this idea of a new sweet tooth, and I don't know if Lemire is actually going to do that. if we are going to see a sweet tooth like Volume Two, like the new sweet tooth getting ongoing or something like that? I don't know. Like if he does, and okay, I can understand why this would be a thing, but the express purpose of this final issue seems to be just, "Hey, now there's the sweet tooth around." That just seems flaccid. it Seems very kind of flimsy to even have this. Like I think there would be a really good message here if we had. Like a Gus that decided to live with human beings. Like underground. Like um, now he can have like, the kind of life he thought he might have wanted. At the beginning of the main series. The original series. Maybe he have a life down there. You know among humans. That would be really cool to explore. Because it seems like the disease doesn't exist down there. That there's half human. Uh, half animal hybrids down there. That, that could coexist. And maybe see civilization burn out from that. Peacefulness you know. But it's really nothing. It really isn't. And And who knows, like I guess it leaves it open-ended, but it's open-ending a question that wasn't even a question that anyone was asking. Sweet Tooth ended. And now it's like, I don't know, it's up in the air, but it wasn't before. So unless you're adding something new, then it was all kind of pointless. I mean, it wasn't bad. Overall, I give the miniseries a 6 out of 10. But this issue was like one thumb middle, one thumb down. And uh, yeah, that's about it for what I read this week. Let's move on to what I watched this week with the fourth episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier which is probably like the most insulting episode. Like it's not the worst episode but it is the most insulting because it delves right into that whole WandaVision audience manipulation thing where the show clearly thinks that viewers are idiots and they're easily manipulable into what they want us to sort of perceive the characters as because and this has been a big topic this week we see the characters and the show try to contend with both the terrorists that kill all these and people and U.S. agent who is kind of going off the deep end now what the weird thing is, is that the terrorist who killed all these and people and who was planning to do it again uh, gets this really sympathetic lens to her and the U.S. agent who has kind of PTSD and you know is clearly just trying to do the right thing and and whose only kind of snapping moment, like, where his mind kind of falls to pieces a bit, is when his best friend gets murdered in front of him. It's like, one, one, where they sympathize, and one is like, oh, that's too far. We're, now we're going to suddenly make a black and white scenario. And, like, no, if you're going to have a nuanced show that is trying to, you know, give a kind of really in-depth, hearty uh, sort of perception on things and actually sort of, you know, develop things, and that kind of nuance should be throughout the show you can't just switch it on and off whenever you want and that's something that a lot of mcu movies and these mcu shows have tried to do we're like oh yeah now we're in get some nuance we're gonna see some deftiest character we're gonna see some development and some real intricate character beats but now we're not for the for this part of the show and it's, it's pointless like I either do it or don't. Like, there's room for both. Like, Naya reading has to be nuanced, you know. You can make it just a really kind of black and white, very kind of blunt show. And that'd be fine if it was uniformly black and white and blunt, you know. I mean, Captain America, The First Adventure, great MCU movie. It was really black and white. It was really blunt. Um, But that was a charm to it. and That's why it worked, because it was uniformly black and white. So, no one was trying to say, you know, we should probably get into the, the characterization the Red Skull. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't a point to that. But it's it's trying to do something like that with WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier. And it just doesn't work because it makes your show feel atonal and chaotic. And that's what this kind of ending really goes for. And it feels jarring and honestly kind of too much of a disconnect uh, between what the show wants us to sort of perceive and what's actually being shown to us. And that was a shame. Uh, So it is a pretty insulting episode. And I I think that there's only two episodes left. So I don't see the show getting any better. And that's a shame because the show still has a great production value. And I think the actors are still really trying. But the show itself and the storyline just isn't. So overall, two thumbs down. Anyway, that's it for this week. I just want to give a shout out to the cover art show at DOTEMCE. Please them out. They're amazing. Give them all the love they can get. And I want to give an announcement. The first episode of Comics Code Authority um, with Rover Queen and Mr. Mitchell is going to be recording sometime soon. So hopefully we're going to get that uploaded on its proper main channel um, ASAP. And I'm going to link it below when that does happen. I'm going to announce it on an episode when it does happen. So yeah, fingers crossed. Can't wait to um, get around to uh, uh, sharing that with the world. Because uh, I think it's going to be really fun. So again, thank you so much for listening. Have a great one. And uh, see you again next time.